The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 1 this morning. And uh, we're going to be continuing in our series, Blueprint, uh, where we're looking at Paul's letter to Timothy and how the framework that Paul describes to Timothy as he's leading the church in Ephesus is something that we can all learn from. It's God's design for the church. And so uh, I just want to remind you very quickly of what we talked about last week because I want you to see the importance of how these passages are connected. And so last week we really examined and looked into this idea of pushing back against false doctrine or false teachings and how important it is for us to not only recognize false teaching but also to stand firm in the truth. And that's what Paul was encouraging Timothy, that there seemed to be these false teachings coming up in the church, and Timothy, as a young pastor, would certainly feel the pull to give in to what was popular. But Paul was encouraging Timothy to stand firm on the truth, even if at times that's a difficult decision and might cost him popularity or maybe some reputation among people. And it's in light of this that Paul transitions into our verses today, verses 12 through 17. And so I want to be upfront with you about a couple things of how today's sermon is going to work. The first thing is we are going to be anchored in 1 Timothy verses 12 through 17. But for the majority of our time together, while we're anchored in those verses, I'm going to have you in just a moment after I read these, turn in your Bibles to Acts 22, because Paul's going to talk about his testimony in these verses, and I want to show us a little bit more built-out example of that that goes along with this text. So we're going to read through 1 Timothy 1, 12 through 17, and then together we're going to go look at another passage of Scripture. The main point in everything we talk about today, the main point in this passage is this. Jesus gives us mercy for a purpose. Jesus gives us mercy for a purpose. Let's look at the mercy of God in Paul's life in verses 12 through 17 of 1 Timothy 1. I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service. Though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief, and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. To the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray together this morning. God, thank you that we have the opportunity to look at this beautiful, wonderful truth that is on the surface and throughout, especially these verses of Scripture, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. God, I pray that that would be the basis on which we build everything in our lives, from which I preach, from which we live, God, in everything. Will we never become bored with the mystery and the beauty that you sent your son into the world to die for sinners? God, we love you today with this time be about you and to the glory of your name. It's in your name we pray, amen. So the task given to Timothy was not only to teach against false teachers, as we saw last week, but it was also to preach the gospel. 
It was not just to push back against something, but that teaching must be replaced with what is true, the gospel. And it seems that the best way to combat this is by looking at the central truth that we see in verse 15 of this passage. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We're going to be talking about that phrase a lot because it's at the heart of everything in Paul's story. It's at the heart of our stories for those of us who are believers in Christ. It is this truth that Paul wants Timothy to teach, not these endless myths or stories or genealogies that we saw in last week's passage around verse 4. And so Paul's appeal to preach the gospel, he roots it in his personal testimony. In the middle of giving instruction to Timothy, he stops and he describes himself in light of mercy, but also says who he was before. He very quickly, in just five verses, shares his testimony of what Christ had done for him. It's when we consider the myths and the endless genealogies, these false teachings that were being taught in Ephesus, that Paul says, those things are being taught, but they are powerless. Let me show you what has power. Look what God's mercy did in my life. No story other than the gospel, no genealogy, nothing, no other teaching could so radically change a person such as me from a terrorist against the church to someone seen as faithful and an appointed minister writing this very letter to you. Paul's basis, encouragement for Timothy to preach the gospel is saying, look at the power it has. My life is a testimony to it. And that's the basis of what what Paul roots everything in. So I want you to consider God's mercy as we look at Paul's story. So if you would, being anchored and rooted in 1 Timothy, we're going to flip to Acts chapter 22. We're going to go to Acts chapter 22. There are many times in the New Testament that Paul is given the opportunity and also records in his letters his testimony. The reason why I want us to flip to Acts 22 here is because this is a firsthand account of Paul's encounter with Christ on the road to Damascus. But also, this is when he's given the opportunity to share. He has so many things he could say to this crowd of unbelievers whose attention he has, but he chooses to go with his testimony here. So in Acts 22, what we're going to do is we're going to look at at Paul's life before mercy, we're going to look at Paul's life after mercy, and then we're going to see what he does with it. Because remember, I'm saying today that Jesus gives us mercy for a purpose. So let's consider Paul's life before mercy This is going to be in Acts 22, and this is going to be in verses 3 through 5. Paul is giving an address in Jerusalem to Jews who are wanting to kill him. He's given the opportunity to speak, and this is what he says. Verse 3, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus of Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted the way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the council of elders can bear me witness. From them I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. This same person that in 1 Timothy Christ uh, describes Paul as faithful, appointed to mercy, This is the same Paul who, in his own recounting of what was going on, was a terrorist against the early church. Perhaps there was no other man in the life of the early church that Christians were more afraid of than Paul, at this point called Saul. His reputation preceded him. He was infamous for how brutal and how zealous he was to catch people of what was then called the way, people of the early church, people who followed Jesus 
and killing them, imprisoning them, whatever it took so they would not preach anymore. Here, when Paul's given the opportunity to go into philosophy and to argue facts about why this man who used to persecute the church now follows this very Jesus he once persecuted, he goes into his testimony and recounts just how much of a terrorist he was against it. He thought, remember, Paul thought as he persecuted the church before Christ, he thought he was right. He was not doing this in open rebellion because he wanted the way of God to die. He did not want God to be erased from memory. That's not what he's wanting. He thought he was acting in accordance with what God wanted, even though he was in sin against him. In 1 Timothy, where we're anchored today, Paul described himself before mercy as a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. And Paul's rebellion, though it looked different than we might recognize, Paul said that he was acting in ignorance. He was acting in ignorance. He he didn't know better. Now, that doesn't mean that he was any less guilty of sin or that he received a different punishment for sin because, well, he didn't know what was going on. But instead, what Paul is cluing us into in his very testimony is that there's another category for sin that sometimes we often overlook. So let's take this truth and look at our own lives. And what we see is that our sin mostly falls into two categories. The first category is open rebellion. That's the sin that's easy for us as people who believe in Christ or or even as people who look at sin and what it is. That's the easy sin to describe. It's open rebellion. It's knowing the commands of God and then willingly choosing to disobey them, to go against them. The sins that we often think about the ones that are easy to point out in ourselves and in others. These are the ones where we break God's commands. In the Ten Commandments, it says, do not bear false witness, do not lie, but instead we lie. We are aware of what the Bible says, but we rebel against it. Perhaps these sins are most easily seen in the lives of little children. Think about it for a moment. In in kids ages two to five, I have the opportunity to work with them every week. And one of the things that I'm still learning is that whenever you want a child, you're giving instruction and you don't want them to do something, you do not give the negative, you give the positive. So if they are running and you want them to walk, you don't say, don't run. Because if you say that, they hear, run. And so they run. They do the exact opposite of what you want them to do. So you say, walk right? So you have to do the opposite of what's told because whenever you give that command, there's this tendency where the kids find out, oh, Coach Matt doesn't want us to do this. Guess what I'm about to do? And they're about to run off with the soccer ball and you're never going to see them again. So that's where we can see very easily open rebellion, but you know, it grows and we see that in ourselves as well. For us, sometimes it can be more frustrating We can look at ourselves, maybe as believers in Christ, and we see these things that we know we should not be doing, yet for some reason it seems inexplainable to us, we still do them. We're still in open rebellion against God. And that's one category for sin. The second that Paul clues us into in this passage is ignorance. Sins of ignorance, of not knowing better. And this is where sins kind of get more difficult to describe or even to talk about because It's weighted. There are questions with it. Sins of ignorance, of not knowing better, of not even being aware that you're sinning, or not even being aware of the commands of God that you're breaking, these sins come out of rebellious hearts. The issue with sins of ignorance is not our actions, but the root issue behind it is that those actions come out of hearts that do not desire God at all. They're not tuned towards God at all. And since they're not, we sin so often in ways that we don't 
even realize. We are in tune with his character. We don't desire the things that he wants. And oftentimes we think we are or just don't even catch that we're not desiring it. We are ignorant to the fact. We are just not aware of it. And sins of ignorance, perhaps the easiest way to consider these sins, and one of the major ways, is to consider people in places where they have never heard the name of Jesus, have never had a a copy of the Bible or an understanding of what God expects of them. Whenever we think of sins of ignorance, it's very easy to think about those peoples, even today in 2018, who have never heard the name of Jesus who do not know what God expects of them. They are just as much in sin as those who have openly rebelled against God, those people who know what God expects, who have heard the name of Jesus, have rejected him or sin against him. The sins of ignorance are worthy and deserving of the same punishment. And this is why missions is so important. There is not a difference in punishment or a a difference in what's expected out of people depending on an open rebellion sin or a sin of ignorance. Sin deserves the same punishment. At the heart of all sin is defiance against God and people are living in this world today who are sinning in ignorance and do not realize that there is a way to be saved from their sins. Church, this is why missions is so important. This is why missions is so important Important because because they need to hear the name of Jesus. They need to hear that they are in sin, that we might then share of the mercy of God. They cannot be aware of the mercy or that it's available if they don't even recognize they're in sin in first place. And yes, there are still people. There are still entire people groups who are not aware that they need salvation because they've never heard the name of Jesus They have never heard that God loves them or what God expects of them. They have never heard that mercy is available. And God is calling us to go, to support those who go, to play a part in missions until people from every tribe, tongue, and nation hear of the mercy of God. That's why missions is so important. Continuing on in this idea, uh, this theme of ignorant sin. In Romans chapter 14, verse 23, Paul writes that whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. In the middle of this discussion in Romans of how the gospel plays into the food laws that they were working through that were part of Jewish custom that Jesus had fulfilled, Paul leaves us this nugget of truth right in the middle of it. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. This truth is not limited to the food laws that he was addressing, but he's looking at an overarching issue, and he's trying to get to the heart behind the matter of our sins. What Paul is saying here is that whatever does not proceed from faith in God is sin against him. There's no gray area. It's black and white. It's either sin or it's obedience to God. And it's deeper than our actions. It's a heart issue behind them. Because whatever action does not proceed from faith is sin against him. It can look like a good action, but in our hearts, we're still dead in our trespasses and sins. And that's why our greatest need, Paul's greatest need as he thought he was obeying God and persecuted the church, all of our greatest need is not for a moral fix. It is not to straighten up our actions through self-discipline and through self-help. Our greatest need is for a new heart. When we receive a new heart, 
through Jesus Christ, then listen to how this addresses the two types of sin. When we receive a new heart, our desires then become changed to long for what God wants. So then the open rebellion, that's taken care of. And then also when we receive new hearts, our eyes will be open to the truth of who God is and what he expects, which is against ignorance. We then know what God wants for us. We know how he loves us. When we receive new hearts, then we can begin to address the issues of sin in our lives as God makes us aware of them and begins to make us look more and more like Jesus. Our greatest need is not for a moral fix. It's for new hearts. We need mercy. This is who we all are before mercy. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. We commit sins of open rebellion, knowing what God wants and sinning against it. We sin and we don't even realize it. There is nothing we can do to save ourselves. And that's where Paul was before mercy as well. But next, Paul's going to talk about who he was after mercy. In verses 6 through 16 of Acts 22, we're going to see how Paul recounts his turning point in his encounter with Christ and this truth that's at the center of everything. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. So join me in Acts 22. We're going to read verses 6 through 16. Listen to how Paul recounts what happens. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me. And I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one, Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now why do you wait? Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. Paul's encounter with Jesus is very unique. I would say that Paul is the only one who had an encounter with Jesus in such a way that it blinded him on this road to Damascus. Consider everything that's happening here. First, consider who's meeting Paul, the resurrected Jesus. Now, keep in mind, Paul thought he was obeying God by persecuting those people of the way, the people who identified themselves as the ones who followed Jesus. Paul probably thought Jesus was dead, still in the tomb, and these people were just psychotic people who were perpetuating this lie for others to believe. He most certainly did not recognize that Jesus was the Messiah foretold in the Old Testament that Paul himself had memorized. He wanted nothing to do with Jesus, probably thought he was dead, and as he went to Damascus to persecute more Christians there, he's on his way, and suddenly the Jesus that he thought was dead most certainly showed himself to be alive. The resurrected Jesus had a personal meeting with Paul in a way that was obvious, that Paul could not argue against as something that maybe he made up or dreamt. He roots this in the fact that the others with him saw what was going on. They just did not understand it. And that Jesus chose Paul 
as the one to carry on his mission, the very person persecuting him. So we see the resurrected Jesus meeting with Paul, but also we see that Jesus gives Paul a physical reminder by blinding him and having him go to Ananias for the scales, the blinders to be removed off his eyes. This was a physical reminder of what God had just done in Paul's heart. Remember before, he said that he was acting in ignorance. He thought he was actually following God the entire time. The blinders were over his eyes, and he could not see that he was persecuting the very Messiah the Old Testament said was coming. It was only after Jesus came and spiritually removed the blinders that Paul understood what he was missing and understood that this is the king that he should follow. So Jesus gives him a physical reminder of it. The scales would be removed from his eyes just as that ignorance would be removed from Paul's heart. And then Jesus gives him a mission. In Acts 9, 15 through 16, while Paul is on his way to Ananias, God says this to Ananias and part of his instruction to him. He says this about Paul and what he has for him. Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. What if our invitation was just that? Come suffer for Jesus. What if that was our invitation at the end of every week? That's not pretty. That's not a pretty invitation. If you want people to come follow something, I'm going to promise you that like the way you want to advertise it is not, come suffer with us. It's going to be great. That's not the way it's advertised. But that's the exact plan that God has for Paul. But it's because Paul sees Christ as worth it. He sees Christ as worth it. And consider this too. God's purpose for Paul was to experience the very thing that Paul was bringing about on others. And an incredible change of events through God's mercy alone. Paul would go from the one persecuting people to the one receiving that very persecution that he was giving to others. No false teachings, false myths, no genealogies could cause Paul to want to do that. Only the mercy of God. He looks on the same Paul who is persecuting his people. God looks at him and says, he is a chosen instrument of mine. He is mine. I have a plan for him of all people. In 1 Timothy Paul recounts, he says that he's seen as faithful. And he's not saying, hey, I've done everything right. Paul's not bragging on the basis of his own actions. What he's doing is he's rooting it in what Jesus has done for him. The reason why Paul is faithful is because God sees him as faithful through Christ, not because of anything that Paul had accomplished. It was on the mercy of God's, it was on the basis of God's mercy alone. It was all because of God, not because of Paul. Paul gives thanks. I don't know if you caught it or not. In the first three verses of First Timothy, in the first three words of First Timothy, the verses we're looking at today, this testimony is rooted in Paul giving thanks. I give thanks, he says, because he had received mercy. Before he was a blasphemer, a persecutor, an arrogant man acting in ignorance and unbelief. That's how Paul described himself. And now, because of Christ Jesus. Paul describes himself as strengthened by Jesus, appointed to ministry by Jesus, considered faithful by Jesus because of Jesus' work and given the opportunity to testify. Why? How could this be? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. 
That's how this could be. That is the only thing powerful enough to change Paul, a man who persecuted people who followed Jesus, to the man who could not stop preaching because that was his delight, his desire for all people to know him. Let me ask you this. Do you ever wish that you had a dollar for something you've said a million times? You ever wish you had a dollar for something? Especially parents. Parents, y'all would be loaded, wouldn't you? It would be great. It would be so easy. You wouldn't have to worry about anything anymore for every time that you've told your kids something. Some spouses are nodding in their heads too. Yeah, so yeah, we would be so rich if we had a dollar. If we could just pick one phrase and get a dollar for something we've said every time, it would be wonderful. I remember when I was looking forward to being a youth pastor in in high school in my first year of college. I, I used to think, I used to have this temptation that when God would bless me with a ministry, if he would do that, that I would have to come up with something interesting to draw people in every week. In my, my ignorance, I thought that I would be coming up with a new message, new something to keep people interested. Because after all, isn't that the way the world works? New things are introduced every year. Sequels to movies that are successful are introduced to try to keep your interest, to try to continue to bring in money and profit. And this isn't in Scripture. This is just my speculation, my imagination with, with Timothy being a young pastor. But just bear with me. I can imagine that Timothy probably felt the same pull a little bit in his heart. That in the midst of these false teachings, Timothy, a young pastor to a church at Ephesus, I believe, I'm sure there was probably a temptation in his heart to preach something new, to draw people in, that the church would continue to grow. But what Paul is saying here is this. Our message never changes our message never changes. A million times over in my life, the message will always be the same. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Each and every week out of this pulpit, from Pastor Scott, we hear Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We see how that plays out in our lives in so many different ways. But what God has shown us, what Paul is teaching to Timothy, is that as believers... Our message never changes, never changes. Our message, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We never grow beyond that. That is the message. So as a pastor, as a youth pastor, I don't come up with a new message every week. Every week, the heart of what I'm saying is the same. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. It's the same thing every week, whether you realize it or not. And it's beautiful. It's wonderful. It's the basis of everything. How could Paul be considered faithful or worthy? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. How could he receive this new identity as one appointed to ministry, strengthened by Christ, considered faithful, and given the opportunity to testify? Because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. We have been shown mercy Remember how I said our greatest need is for a new heart? There's there's only one way that we can receive a new heart, and that's through the mercy of Jesus. It's through the mercy of Jesus. Jesus gives us mercy because there's only one who did not openly rebel against God the Father. There's only one who never sinned in ignorance against God the Father, the only perfect one, the only one who could stand in our place and take the punishment for our sins upon himself, and that man is Jesus That man is Jesus. He stood in our place, fully man, fully God, lived a perfect life and died on the cross, taking the punishment for our sins upon himself. 
And he did not stay dead. But as we see very clearly in Paul's testimony, he was risen to life again. That all who will place their trust in him for salvation might be raised in the same way one day. The beauty of what we proclaim here at church every week is Christ, Jesus, came into the world to save sinners. And it's not our good actions that save us. It is only Jesus. Jesus is the only one. And when we trust him, he will take our sin and punishment. It's this idea that we've talked about in youth, and I just want to take a moment and share it with you. This past week in youth, uh, as we've been looking through different aspects of salvation this last Wednesday, um, the students and I, we walked through the idea of justification. The idea of justification is this doctrine we see in Scripture of how Christ paid for our sins and how we can stand before God as if we had never sinned. And I think a lot of times we, we don't realize the depth or the grandeur to which this beautiful truth that Christ came into the world to save sinners, how much richness there is to it because maybe we don't understand our situation. One of the easiest ways, one of the, the ways I set before the students to consider justification is to, in your mind, consider a courtroom. Consider a courtroom. And in this courtroom, you are the defendant. You're the defendant who comes into the courtroom. The judge in this courtroom is Almighty God, the one who knows all things, who is a perfect and always fair judge. You come in, and the punishment brought before you is separation from him forever in hell. There's no escaping what you've done. There is no way you can plead your case because the judge already knows all things. There's no excuse you can use to get out of it. You have openly rebelled against God. You have sinned in ignorance against God. And really, all you can do at this moment before the perfect judge who knows all things is receive your punishment. And it's right when you think that you're about to receive that punishment that is fair, that is just and due to you, that someone steps in and says, I will take the punishment for them. That person is Jesus. And in that moment, it's not only that Jesus takes the punishment for us if we trust in him, but it's also that we receive his perfection So that when the punishment that we deserve, that we could not escape, that was coming for us, is suddenly given to Jesus, who has no reason, no no way that in, in, in another form that he would take that punishment because he was innocent. No reason why he should take it. In love and mercy, he takes it for us. Then we can be set free. And suddenly, we stand before God, the judge, not as a judge, but as a father. And we are adopted into his family. And we are no longer sinners, but we receive Christ's righteousness. And it's as if we never sinned. We no longer have to feel the gavel, fear the gavel coming down and judging us to condemnation away from God forever. We have nothing to fear because we've been counted righteous because Christ was righteous. Listen, the beauty of mercy is that when we deserve that punishment, when the gavel was about to go down and that was about to be the end of the story, Christ stepped in. And in mercy, he offered himself as a sacrifice for us because Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And who we are after mercy, we are children of the one true and living God. And he looks at us because of Christ and says, you are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. It's not on the basis of what we do. It's on the basis of Christ. We who were once condemned and once God's enemies, we are now his friends and more than that, his sons. That's the beauty of mercy in our lives. And that's the same mercy that we can receive today. The same mercy shown to Paul. The same mercy he wants Timothy to preach. But now, 
to come to a close, listen to the last part. The last part is the purpose of mercy. So Christ has given us mercy for a purpose. Let's listen to that purpose. Let's finish in Acts 22. We're going to read verses 17 through 21. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Rooted in this passage is God's commission to go, not only for Paul's safety, but to testify to the goodness of God. If we look back in verse 14 of Acts 22, he was reminded that the God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, for you will be a witness for everyone of what you have seen and heard. And so Acts, as Paul finishes his testimony in Acts, it ends with a commission, an action to go. He ended it with this note of what he'd been called to do since to proclaim to the Gentiles and then also to the Jews, the Jews in the crowd that he was sharing this very testimony with here. In 1 Timothy, Paul says he received mercy, but then he adds, so that the purpose was to be an example to others. Christ had intervened in Paul's life in order that he might share that story with others. He had not received mercy to sit and be like, I got mercy. This is great, wonderful, but to share it with others. Because people who have received mercy respond to that mercy. People who have received mercy, people who have received Christ's mercy on us, received salvation, are then called to respond to that. Action comes out of it. There are two ways that we see in our passage in 1 Timothy. Remember, I reminded you that the first three words in our passage were, I give thanks. So the first way that we see this mercy lead us to response is in worship. He says, I give thanks. And then at the end of the passage in 1 Timothy, now to the king eternal, immortal, invisible, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. This thanksgiving is what brackets the passage at the beginning and the end of it. And the basis of it is that he had been shown God's mercy. It's worship that's at the, the beginning and the end of Paul's testimony. Our whole lives belong to God. For those of us who have been shown mercy, our whole lives belong to God. And this means that we worship God. And worship is not just limited to singing, but it includes it. Worship of God and response to mercy includes learning more about him. Worship to God in response to mercy includes giving our finances in gratitude, in an overflow of an abundance of, of thanksgiving for what he's done for us. Worship includes giving thanks for everything because we realize that we are people who have received mercy when we did not deserve it. Mercy leads us to worship. It's when we look at what God has done for us and consider the gravity and the greatness of it that we're stirred on to worship God with our lives. So that's the first part. Mercy causes us to respond in worship. But second, mercy leads us to testify to God's mercy. Mercy leads us to respond by testifying. The command given to Paul to be his witness in verses 14 and 15 of Acts 22, it echoes the command given to the disciples who multiplied and the command given to the early church in Acts 1.8. You will be my witnesses, Jesus said to them. Your command, testify. 
You will be my witnesses. Tell them what you have seen. Tell them what I have done. Tell them of the salvation that I have made available. These disciples who had received mercy, 11 of them, testified to the goodness of God. And the early church exploded. It erupted. And all along the way, worship came out of it. And people continued to testify because they could not believe that God had made a way. They were testifying to God's grace and mercy in their lives. As I seek opportunities personally to share the gospel with others, by God's grace, I've been given a couple opportunities to just share with people uh, along the street as I've been walking downtown or something. And God has brought someone up to me. And one of the things that I've learned, one of the, the things I'm trying to learn as I share and that I've realized is that it's very difficult for people, even in today's culture, to argue against your story. We can approach the gospel from facts and a basis and showing why it's true. And there is most definitely a place for that. But, but in these instances, by God's grace that I've been given to share, I've just shared my story. How I grew up in West Virginia until I was 18 years old. And I became saved when I was six. And as I was a teenager in high school, I felt the Lord leading me to ministry. And so I found out about North Greenville and I moved there. And already by this point, in the couple times I've been able to share my story, people were just like, why would you leave West Virginia to come here? Why would you take that shot, apply for only one college because of God's mercy? It's only by his grace that I did that. It's nothing in me Left to my own devices, I wouldn't desire that. But already people can't argue against the fact that something must have motivated me to take such a risk. And that's where I'm able to testify. It's God's mercy. He saved me when I didn't deserve it. And he placed a calling on my life to serve his people, but also to encourage others to, to tell of the goodness of God that we all have this story of how Christ saved us that, that we get to tell as believers in God. And just sharing your story is one of the hardest things for people to argue against. That's why Paul rooted in his one chance to argue for the gospel against these Jews. He didn't point to facts. He could have. Paul didn't point to the Old Testament in all these verses that we see other instances where Peter did. In this particular instance, Paul points to his story because these people knew who Paul was before. They were in Jerusalem as he was persecuting people and they have to be considering in their minds, why would Paul go from persecuting to the one receiving that persecution? That doesn't make sense and that's where Paul inserts the gospel. It's the same thing we see in 1 Timothy. When he encourages Timothy what to tell, he says, tell them of God's mercy. Look at my life. It wasn't false myths or genealogies that did this. It was the mercy of God. So believer, while everything we say, everything we believe is most definitely rooted in scripture, God has given you a story to tell. God has given each and every believer a story to tell. The story of how he pursued you, how he saved you, and how he has called you to tell others about that. Each and every one of us has a story of God's mercy that we can share with others. It isn't our story, it's God's story in us. It's one of the easiest ways we can tell others about what God has done. And so Jesus gives us mercy to testify to his goodness. And and I just want to end by this. Two of the ways that we see in this passage that God's mercy plays out in our lives is through worship and through testifying. And the argument I want to make is that worship or giving thanks and testifying are intrinsically connected. They're interwoven and they cannot be separated. Here's why. If, as a believer in Jesus Christ, you believe that God is supremely 
and ultimately worth all of your praise. It is worth giving the glory to for everything that you do. He is worthy of everything that you are. If you believe that for yourself, you cannot believe that God is worthy of praise above everything else for yourself and not believe that he is not worthy of the praise of someone else. If, if God is worthy, ultimately, the highest praise above everything else, and you believe that to be true, it must be something you believe is true for each and every person. And how is anyone else going to know to worship God apart from if you tell them that God has shown them mercy and he's worthy of that worship? There is a disconnect in your mind if you believe that God is worthy of your ultimate worship and praise, but you're not sharing that with others. There's a disconnect somewhere in your minds, and I don't say this to condemn you, but to bring it to light so you might see that, that sharing the gospel is not something tacked on to the Christian life. Sharing the gospel is, is not something that you, you strive and you earn to do, but it's kind of over here, and when I think about it, I'll get to it. What I'm arguing today is that sharing the gospel, testifying to God's goodness, comes out of an overflow of your love for God and your understanding for his mercy. It will naturally show itself into that. I've said this before from the pulpit, but I want to submit this to you again. We are all evangelists to something. We're all evangelists to something. We all testify to something that we love. It's whatever we love most in the moment. It doesn't mean they're all bad things. They can be good things. Think about it. When someone sees a movie that's incredible and they come up to you, they want to tell you about that movie. They want to testify to it because they loved it. They thought it was good. They thought it was worth sharing with others about how good this movie is. If that's true on this surface level, how much more is that true for the God of all creation who has shown us mercy? If we think, if we know to be true that he is worthy of the worship above everything else, that's going to naturally come out in how we talk to others. It's just going to naturally come out in how we talk to others. These two things are interwoven, and they're our response to mercy. God has given us, believers, mercy for a purpose. So here's where I want to end today. You have received mercy. Believers in Jesus Christ, you have received mercy. What are you doing with it? What are you doing with that mercy? How are you proclaiming the most beautiful truth we know? The same truth I've said countless times this sermon. The same truth we all proclaim. Christ Jesus died to save sinners. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you that you have shown us mercy and God, that you work in our hearts to reveal that mercy to us just as you did in Paul's life. God, I pray that today, as we examine our lives in the areas where we fall short, the response wouldn't be condemnation or shame put on us, but God, that we would lean into that mercy and understand that grace and forgiveness is waiting for us. God, would you help us to understand how a love for you shows itself in testifying to it, shows itself in worship. And God, would you grow us in that love and in that understanding of your mercy? It's in your name I pray, amen. Very simply today, um, the first thing I wanna do before I go any farther is I wanna offer an invitation. Maybe you're in here today. You came to church as a favor for a friend. Maybe you came to church to kind of explore and see more about this Jesus that someone you know talks about and maybe they invited you today. And, and maybe you hear about God's mercy and your need for a new heart and you recognize that's true for you today. I, I don't want to go any farther without inviting you to respond to that mercy by trusting Jesus to save you. By laying down your life that you might find it in Christ. 
Don't, don't push back against the mercy of God because you're so upset that you're found condemned. But the reality is that Christ offered his son as a way out and is offering to you a restored relationship with him as your father. If you're here today and you want to know more about what it means to follow Jesus and to give your life to him, in just a moment, I'm gonna be up front. Pastor Scott's here too. We would love to talk to you more about that. Believers in here, I wanna encourage us to worship from an overflow of understanding the mercy that God has given us. Here in a moment, that's gonna look a lot like singing. But I also want you to consider the ways that you can be worshiping God throughout the week and the other things that you do in the other arenas where God has called you, how can an understanding of God's mercy overflow into worship? Maybe it looks like there's someone you need to testify of God's mercy to this week. Maybe it looks like you need to consider finances and what you're giving things towards. Maybe it looks like you need to consider what your house and your life and your your pattern of living is organized around because Jesus is kind of tacked onto it instead of being the center of it. Whatever it is, God is offering his mercy still to us as believers to repent and to find rest in him that we might be encouraged and take those first steps of obedience in some areas of our life. Believer, would you step into that this morning? When we see it up front, Pastor Scott will be here. Come talk to us if there's anything we can help you with. Let's sing today. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.